Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat Podcast. Welcome to the Blue Hat Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We have a very special guest. We have Darren Spruill, who is going to be discussing with us what he presented at the Blue Hat Convention that happened October of this year, 2023. Darren, thank you for joining us. Please introduce yourself. Hey, yeah, thanks for inviting me to the podcast. My name is Darren Spruill, and I'm currently the Chief Intelligence Officer at Inquest. I lead the Intel mission here at the company. And, you know, I've been here about a year actually kind of closing in on that. It's been enjoyable. What does Inquest do? So Inquest is a file detection and response company. We bring something to the market that's basically kind of based on our proprietary deep file inspection technology. And effectively, we like to view the threat landscape through the lens of files. If you kind of imagine how like attacks play out, you know, most of the time you can boil the elements of attacks down into files, actually, right? It's either files that are attached via email, files that you're downloading from the web, or maybe you've got like, you know, data in files on a shared drive, for example. But we look at a lot of threat carriers. And with deep file inspection, what we do is we basically inspect and analyze files to like an incredibly deep level to try to find malicious traits in them, any sort of malicious characteristics. You got to think about like what antivirus does. We do what antivirus does, and then we go about you know twelve miles deeper, just breaking it down and decomposing it. And uh, it's been very fruitful. We've been doing this for you know ten plus years, serving a lot of mainly like public sector companies, also some private sector, and it keeps us busy. <laughs> I love hearing things like this because when you think of attackers, all you think of things is like hackers. People, you know, with their mm-hmm. you know, the movie hackers, they're on their screen, you got the green, but you don't really understand the methodology or the mechanics behind it. And I had no idea that files were so impactful when it comes to that side of things. So I thank you for that. Yeah. How did you get to where you're at? What what sparked that first interest in cybersecurity? And then how did you get to where you're at now at Inquest? You're you're taking me back a ways with that question. So I came out of, you know, high school, a couple of years later, I ended up just wanting to take a job. So I moved to a uh, small town up in Utah and there was a call center there. And at the call center, they had a contract with, I think at the time it was Network Associates. And this is who owned at the time McAfee Antivirus. So my first job wasn't intended to be in cybersecurity, but what their contract was, was basically doing like virus and malware removal on their business and home customers' computers. So back in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, you would have been on AOL and, you know, you would open up the wrong email attachment and then you'd get infected and then you'd freak out and call support. So there was these uh, armies of antivirus engineers who would basically run through like manual removal steps. And this was back when it was like, you know, we knew all of the malware. There was dozens of them or potentially, you know, hundreds at the time. And uh, I was one of those engineers that would basically link up with customers and then they would have maybe like a corporate outbreak on their network. And then we would run through these like painful 
uh, manual removal steps to go through the Windows registry and remove persistence locations and remove files from the drive and reboot in safe mode and remove more files and so on and so forth. So that was kind of where I ended up, you know, getting my start. Now, about a year or so into that, I realized that I actually really loved it. Um, and it was just uh, something that I was really passionate about was like combating malware and, you know, criminality in a lot of ways. I think that's something that's appealing to like a lot of us in this field, you know, is kind of being the good guy <laughs> yeah, in sort of a way. So it was interesting and it was just kind of like the first steps into like a much larger world for me. Darren wears a cape. He wears a cape at home. <laughs> <laughs> and Darren, how does that that transition or or that evolution of your career and by the way it's very common uh, you know on the podcast we ask people how they got into cybersecurity so often they say like i didn't plan to get into cybersecurity yeah. <laughs> i uh you know i i started i thought i'd do this thing or i just joined this company and then natural sort of curiosity and aptitudes and and the sort of the 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 magnetic pull of uh you know some unraveling some of these challenges and solving problems and helping people and and that's often the the path that they end up finding so you're on that journey through through that initial role, and and we can spend as much time as you want in your in your LinkedIn profile or not. The topic that you presented on at Blue Hat was all around uh, indicators of compromise and and your thoughts and perspective on how to share better share IOCs or maybe even evolve IOCs in in what they are so that they can contain more information and sort of be more actionable. Could you give us a first of all tell us about the session that you presented and and what it was on? But I'd also love to know how your your current work uh, at Inquest and maybe your journey to your current work at Inquest uh, all ties together into the session you presented. Yeah, sure. Some great topics in there. So the uh, the topic that I presented was in a very brief lightning talk, but it was effectively sort of to engage the community uh, for the purpose of sort of giving an overview of how we share threat indicators, why we share them. And then also how we can probably share them in like a better, more meaningful format to sort of unlock more impact or value. So starting with like what a threat indicator is, right? If we go back in time to, you know, the time I was just talking about at the start of my career, we did very little threat information sharing. We weren't sharing a lot of intelligence with each other because we weren't really thinking in terms of intelligence. There wasn't a lot of folks probably outside of like public sector that we're really thinking in terms of like, who is the adversary that we're dealing with? Who is distributing the malware? What are their aims and objectives? And then how are they doing this? But as the years have gone on, we've actually seen that like pick up considerably now, right? And so when we do face a cyber attack or when we encounter a piece of malware, You've got, you know, small armies of people such as my team who very much want to answer all of those questions. Who's the adversary behind this? What's their motivation? And then how are they carrying this out? When we have that information, we basically have an intelligence advantage over the adversary. We know something they don't want us to know. And we know something that can help other people defend themselves from that same adversary or from that same threat. And so this is kind of the gist of the like threat intelligence, right? And so we've got that intel advantage, and now we want to share that with the other good guys so that we can kind of have community defense and also raise the cost on the adversary. Because if we know something they don't know and we're all putting up like active defenses against them, they're going to have to work harder to reach whatever impact it is they're trying to reach, whether that's financial or whether it's something related to like, you know, geopolitical, uh, sort of like strategic nation state objectives, things like that. 
an active defense is going to set back, you know, what the attacker is trying to achieve and raise their costs. So that's good for everybody, except for them. <laughs> but generally speaking, one of the things that we exchange, sort of like the collateral or currency of threat intel and information sharing is a threat indicator. And this is going to be something we know about the adversary's operation. It might be an IP address that they use that's part of their infrastructure, or it might be a file hash for a piece of malware that they're distributing, or it might be a domain name that they've registered and they're actively using that for phishing or for serving malware, or even for something like command and control. So all of those little atomic indicators have you know, great value to them. And the point of the talk was basically when we share indicators in what I would call like a manual fashion, sort of person to person, Oftentimes, it's a pretty vanilla sort of thing. It's a list of indicators. It's a list of IP addresses, a list of domain names, a list of file hashes. And so what I was exploring was basically, you know, those have a little bit of value in themselves. But if we enrich that information and we kind of like introduce a little bit more dimension to it, or if we provide like some origin context for it, you know, we can still share the same sort of information in effectively like a brief compact format but then kind of start tickling our synapses a bit more. So if I give you an IP address, you don't know much about it, right? You don't know where that IP address is hosted. You don't know which region it's relevant to. You don't know maybe what the reputation of it is. But if I also give you the IP address and I enrich it with information about the autonomous system that is routing that IP address, suddenly you start to realize things about it. Like, oh, this is specific to this region. It has something to do with like a country in Eastern Europe. And therefore, like the threat actor may be local to that region or that country. And also the ASN information will tell you the organization that is routing that, what we call like announcing it on the internet. And so you can actually start to identify like, you know, there's customers of this particular ISP that have something to do with that IP address. And you basically start introducing these breadcrumbs that you can follow. What was once just an IP address that you could like block, you know, or alert on, you now start getting more information about it. And I think these sorts of uh, breadcrumbs can lead us towards greater intelligence. Instead of just blocking an attack, you know, maybe now we can take that attack and tie it back to like an adversary that we had thwarted a year ago. And now we're seeing like a continuation of their targeting, or we can even start to look at things like they've modified their attack somewhat here. They're trying to do this to get around my defenses. And you start creating all of these like intelligence assessments really that can be really helpful for a real defensive program. In your talk, you touched on a couple of things. One was profiles of attackers. So if I'm understanding this correctly, and please tell me if I'm incorrect, is when you start piecing things together, then you start going, okay, this looks like the same pattern. Mm -hmm. Do you put them into, okay, you know, here's attacker A. We're going to put all these pieces of evidence, these breadcrumbs, you know, in this, and then that helps you piece it together? Or is that something totally different, the profile? No, it's it's fairly similar, right? Like... You know, we talk about indicators as sort of like an output of our intelligence, but they are also an input in that same way. So if you're compiling all of the indicators you can related to intrusions and threat actors and like malware campaigns, that does pretty much what you're describing there, right? It starts to build sort of like the technical evidence that you can use to then cluster those things. And those clusters are what start to form into like intrusion sets and intrusion sets start to form into threat actor groups. So you've probably seen this with vendors, including Microsoft's own Mystic group, right? Where we have now these like names that we use to discuss these intrusion sets. 15 years ago, those would have been these like 
sort of meaningless sorts of just like high-level clusters of activity, right? We would have called things, you know, this is Russia, this is Iran, so on and so forth. But now we've gotten to the point that the tradecraft is starting to reveal, you know, based on these things that we track, like this is probably the IRGC in Iran, and it might actually be like the Quds Force within that. You know, and this group of actors has very distinct what we call TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures that they use, which is like their tradecraft as they're carrying out attacks. And so one of the things that factors into that is obviously like the attacker's infrastructure also. You know, the IPs, the domain names, the SSL certs, you know, that are associated with their attack infrastructure and all this stuff comes together into those profiles that you're kind of talking about. So Darren, what is stopping people, entities, organizations, researchers from sharing this sort of high fidelity IOC data. So for example, IOCs are not a standard. Is that is that right? There's no actual industry standard or, or is there an industry standard for how we share indicators of compromise? And perhaps is that then the limitation that the standard itself is sort of too restrictive? Kind of, sort of. So I would say that there are various standards. You know, listeners may be familiar with things like sticks and taxi, for example. You know, these are standards that have come out of standards bodies, and they basically describe very standard ways of exchanging information, sort of like the transport protocol for sharing threat intelligence. But then also Styx gets into like the format of that. Now, the interesting thing is a lot of these standards, they're very much, um, I would say, optimized for automated intelligence sharing. So machine to machine, right? Where you might set up a threat intelligence sharing platform and then you might publish your indicators that you're aware of out to others that you collaborate with. And then that's basically, you know, machine to machine exchange right there, right? It's intended to be automated. It's intended to be very hands-off. Analysts won't look at a lot of that stuff, but you might run like, you know, jobs against it um, to validate it or automate it or transform it to do whatever you need to with it. What my talk kind of got into was like, what do we do person to person? So think about ways that we exchange uh, threat intelligence data person to person. It's whenever I email somebody and I say, hey, you guys should be aware this attack was just occurring. Here's a couple of IP addresses that we saw on our network. Or for example, I'm on a Slack or Teams chat with somebody, you know, maybe it's a partner that I have in another company. We're doing the same sort of thing there. Or it's like, you know, here at Enquest, we publish blogs like a lot of vendors do. And in those blogs, you've got normally sort of like the long form uh, reporting where you're going into detail and providing a lot of context. And then down at the bottom, you might list out the indicators of compromise that were associated with that attack that you're describing. So these are all ways that we kind of do it like person to person. And I think it would be very true to say there's not really a standard for that. If you take a look at 10 different companies' blogs, you'll probably see five different ways that those indicators are sort of like listed out. Some are just a list, some are bulleted, some are in a table. Very often what we get down to is like, it's just a flat list of indicators. It's just the IP addresses, it's just the domain names. They might have descriptions to go with them to capture some of that context. But what I was kind of getting to with my talk also was, instead of just that list, let's enrich that information and let's also provide some like intelligence value to go along with it and represent it in a format that enables us to do what we've been talking about, draw some more conclusions from it, determine if it's applicable, so on and so forth. Before we dig into that, I just wanted to check. I know that there was, it's not Facebook anymore, the meta. Do they still have the threat exchange program? And is that similar to this where folks of 
the same effort come together and share information, or is that a totally separate thing? Because it sounds like if everyone shares information, we can get a little farther ahead. So I'm not sure. I remember hearing about it, but I don't know much about that program, and you might actually know about that. Yeah, well, you got it. As far as I'm aware, that is still an active program with a lot of folks participating in it still, and it is very much that sort of thing. It would fall into sort of the you know machine-to-machine sort of thing. Threat exchange is very much set up for like scale and uh, kind of helping, you know, organizations come together and exchange things. In addition to threat exchange, there's also another one to mention, and that's the Cyber Threat Alliance. I think this is one that spun out of Palo Alto Networks some time ago, but it's very much their own, um, I believe, you know, nonprofit and uh, similar sort of thing. So there's options for this. And I think a lot of leading organizations will participate in as many of these as they can. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these will take care of things like the format and the standard, right, that the indicators have to be in to be exchanged with other organizations. Um, So that's sort of what I would almost call like the solved problem space in some ways. And I think what we've been viewing is like sort of the less solved space is when we're just sending these across to each other, onesie, twosie, how do we kind of pack more value into it and achieve some of what we already do have in the automated space? If I may sort of try and oversimplify it, your your session of Blue Hat and, and, and this topic here is really more about, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, it's more about helping train or evolve the, the actual practitioners to think more about the context and the metadata and the the way that sort of IOCs in their raw hexadecimal form are, are not meant for the human. The human needs more information, more context, more background in order to jump ahead and sort of, you know, as you say, spark the synapses. And so this is less about, hey, let's evolve the automated sharing standards of IOCs and more let's sort of train each other on how better to talk about this stuff when we are sharing, whether it's in one-to-one communication or or emails or or presentations at, at tech conferences. Is that is that, am I on the right path? Yeah, I'd say that's fairly accurate, right? Uh, if you take like your average sort of, <clears throat> and let's say maybe you know less experienced security analyst that's working in a SOC, they're going to be very focused on what do we need to do to stop an attack, to block it or something like that, and that doesn't take very much. If you kind of like evolve that sort of role out into like a threat analyst or like a threat intelligence analyst type of role, you know, when somebody gives me an IP address, that's really the start of the story for me. It's not the end of the story. If you give me an IP address, I really want to understand everything that I can about that IP address and its role in the attack, right? So you can easily provide me the context. We saw this IP address attempting to brute force a bunch of SSH servers on our network. But really, I want to know like, okay, that IP address, you know, is it residential space or is it like server hosting space? In what region? Is it something that's, you know, Europe based? It's out of RIPE? Is it out of North America? So it's under Aaron. We're starting to talk about like regional internet registries or rears, you know, or is it out of Asia Pack? Um, because quite often you don't necessarily see a whole lot of bleed over. A lot of threat groups will stay pretty isolated to the languages that they can speak and the services that they're familiar with. So I want to know a lot of things about IP addresses. Who's routing it? What's the reverse DNS name on it? These sorts of information are like the enrichment bits that just kind of like put labels on it. Imagine, you know, that you're carrying out like that uh, detective solving mystery board, you know, bulletin board thing, and you've just got all these sticky notes that are going on stuff. 
So you put up a picture of a suspect and then you just basically start tagging that picture with all these sticky notes of context. And that's kind of what we need to do a bit more when we're exchanging indicators. It's fine to send somebody a photograph. Have you ever seen this guy? But it's another to say like, hey, you know, here's this guy and this is where he was last seen. And there's also this record attached to him. And he's got this identifiable scar that you can't see right here because this is just his mugshot. You know what I mean? I think we end up doing effectively the same sort of thing in the intelligence space with these otherwise very sort of lackluster, you know, indicators by enriching them and really sort of like drawing out, you know, additional recognition of things from people and in ways that we can't even necessarily predict, right? So if I give you an IP address for an ASN that's routed by an ISP in Russia, maybe what I had intended to communicate about an attack isn't what you initially pick up on. Maybe you're actually looking specifically at like the RUNet, you know, hosting space because you're tracking like bulletproof hosting providers who are operating in the criminal underground and providing like infrastructure services for other criminals. So I may not even like understand what I'm triggering for you, but as long as I'm providing that context and enrichment, magic will happen. You sound super passionate about this, which I love. (laughs) And just kind of a little side tangent here, being in a leadership role, do you still get that hands-on work or do you find, are you finding you're more um, mentoring or teaching or guiding your team, your department? Because I've heard a lot of folks that, such as yourself, that you're so good at what you do that you do get promoted to leadership roles, but then you're like, I miss, I miss hands-on keyboard. So do you get a little bit of both or? I've I've experienced that. Yeah, I've experienced that uh, in other companies. One of the benefits that we have at Inquest is we are extremely small and extremely agile. And so for that reason, you know, I could kind of do both in the same day. And so uh, for me in the current role that I'm in, yeah, I do work very closely with my team as just another threat intel analyst in a lot of ways, you know, and then a lot of like the leadership and expertise just comes with sort of helping set direction and standards and sort of like engagement with other teams. But yeah, it is something that allows me to be very hands-on. It's a it's a nice gig in that regard. Speaking for myself, I always find it very inspiring when leadership jumps in and they're they're in there with everyone else. I mean, I'm newer-ish compared to folks such as yourself in the security world, but seeing that, so hearing how passionate you are, but also hearing that you're actually like in there, in the trenches with everyone is is great. I think that's that's great for your yeah. team. I had a collaborator, you know, once tell me that was kind of the difference between leadership and management sometimes, right? A manager might kind of like manage from the sidelines, but a leader is often, hopefully, you know, first one on the scene and staying there until it's done and so on and so forth, a lot of those traits maybe. So Darren, apart from listening to this podcast episode, watching the uh, replay of your lightning talk at Blue Hat 2023, what are the go-dos for folks listening to the podcast, for folks in the industry? What do you want them to do? We talked about maybe what they should think about, but what are some of some practical guides or some practical bits of direction here for how to share better IOCs or more impactful IOCs? Yeah, that's a good question. What I might do then is let's just do kind of a quick overview for, say, like three or four different types of IOCs, sort of what that is practically. And then what I can do then is uh, point people to resources, you know, afterwards. So going into them in order, we've already touched on one of them in pretty good detail, right? When we talk about IP addresses, it's helpful to represent an IP address by itself, but it's much more helpful to always share an IP address in the context of its BGP or ASN information. 
So there are a couple of free services uh, offered by uh, two organizations. One is Team Cymru, C-Y-M-R-U. That's Team Cymru. They offer an IP BGP lookup for free. Uh, this is an interface on their website, and uh, you can just use it manually in your browser, or they also have a few different sort of like APIs for it. And then another one is Shadow Server. And I know our listeners will be familiar with you know one or both of these organizations. But using their services, you can basically give an IP address as an input and then get uh, ASN information back from that IP. So now you know the ASN that advertises that IP range or that prefix on the internet, and it's in a one-line compact format that you can share. So instead of sharing 10 IP addresses, you share 10 enriched IP addresses with ASN information, and that unlocks a ton of potential, as we were talking about. So that's probably like the main thing for IP addresses. The other thing that I always want to know is like, what is the reverse DNS for an IP address? In the DNS system, we're very familiar with like forward lookups where we have a name and we want to know the IP address of that name. For example, what is the IP address of you know Microsoft.com? That's a forward lookup. But IP addresses also have names. And so we can go the other direction. That's what reverse DNS is. And so knowing the reverse DNS of an IP address can tell you more about you know, who operates it, for example, or who is maybe like over you know, administering uh, that IP space. And that's also valuable for this type of analysis. So getting into host names, if we're dealing with like host names and domain names, the number one thing that really helps for this sort of contextual value with domain names is giving some element of like origin information. So domain names come into being when somebody registers them. You work with a domain registrar and you basically find out, is this domain name free? If it is, then you register it, you pay them a small amount of money. Now you're the owner of that domain. And when that comes into being, when you register a domain, you create a record in a system called Whois. And the Whois data can be really valuable because information that it records, for example, is a creation date. So that gives you some sort of like temporal you know, awareness. This domain was registered seven days ago. Well, new domains can be more suspicious than like older established domains, right? The other information that you get is the registrar. So what we look for is like patterns of registration information. If I'm tracking a threat actor and I know that that threat actor is like regularly generating new domain names and they're registering them through a specific domain name registrar, now I've got the makings of like tracking, you know, that I can start putting together for this. The other information that's helpful in there is going to be like the authoritative name servers. So domain name information is served from DNS servers. That's something that gets recorded in that record also. And then finally, if the actor is not using who is privacy, you'll also maybe have something like an administrator organization or name or email address associated with it. And these are all nuggets that are really helpful for intelligence tracking and uh, attribution in a lot of cases. So who is is the tool for that. Every operating system has a who is client. And there's also a lot of services that will give you like bulk who is data for this type of stuff. But that's what I would share for domain names. Another really interesting trick is like, if you're going to share information about a host name that you've observed, why not also just resolve that host name at that moment? And then just show that pairing of host name plus IP address. Because what you do is you capture at that moment that it's relevant, what did that host name resolve to? And now you've got two bits of information that are connected there, the host name and the IP address. And uh, it has more than a doubling value to it. It's really helpful to see that pairing of information. And it's really easy to get hold of that. You can just do it by, you know, resolving it 
through whatever website or command line tool you want to use. So switching gears to uh, files, this is again back to sort of like our bread and butter at InQuest. Oftentimes files, uh, when you talk about like threat files or malware samples, we represent those as a cryptographic hash. So oftentimes people will use, you know, something like MD5, SHA-1 or SHA-256 to represent a file hash. And that's really great as an identifier, but it also tells you nothing about the file. So when we're exchanging information about files and malware samples, we try to sort of like put more information into that. So when I get my information about a file, what I like to see, for example, is the file size. Is this a file that's maybe like 25 kilobytes in size? Or is this a file that's like eight megabytes large or 20 megabytes large? That's you know very high level, but also like very useful. Other things you can tell about files are the file type. Right, so there's uh, programs like the file tool in Unix or Linux, which uses a, a library called libmagic uh, to just basically tell you this is probably this type of file based on the header that it has or other things that it can read in the first few bytes of the file. So I can know, for example, from that, this is a zip archive or this is a RAR archive, or I can know that this is a Microsoft Word document or maybe a PDF just based on those types of things. So, you know, what classification of file is it? And then we get into um, a related thing, the MIME type, which is also instead of like a big long name to describe what type of file it is, it's just a brief information blurb. And it might be something like, you know, application slash OneNote to indicate that this is a OneNote document. Lastly, we get into things like the different cryptographic hashes. You know, and this is an interesting one also, right? Because if your organization has been standardizing to SHA-1 hashes, and my organization has been standardizing to SHA-256 hashes, and you've got a legacy system that's producing hashes in MD5 algorithm, like you're not going to have the same hash value across all these. So oftentimes when we share file information, we like to share like multiple hashes. Uh, that way you can have a better chance of like correlating that to the hashes that you might have on hand. Just kind of speaking the same language, basically. So we got kind of a list going for files, right? The last thing that I would add in is when we talk about files, there's a lot of tricks. Again, kind of going back to like attacker, you know, TTPs, right? Uh, their techniques and procedures they use. There's a lot of tricks to make one file look like another file. So for example, what I can do is I can take malicious script like PHP code or JavaScript code, and I can basically stuff that inside of an envelope and make it look like a PNG image file. Right. So as long as it has a PNG image header, most of your tools are going to tell you this is a PNG file. But if I include like some additional bytes from that file, uh, now you can tell that it's not actually that thing. Or some of our tools will actually like misdetect. You know, they'll read magic bytes, but like the standard is so vague that they like get the wrong thing. So for example, I look at a lot of OneNote documents. Well, the file utility likes to tell me that some of these OneNote documents are like Unix tar archives, which they're not. So we kind of get into a situation where if you're going to show me and what we like to go for is like the first 16 bytes of a file, uh, I can actually draw a lot of conclusions just by having a little bit more detail. It's not very much at all, but it's enough for me to just kind of like, you know, scope out that file, understand more information about it, and then also use those bytes for like signatures that I write. So a lot of our listeners will use uh, Yara for file scanning. And using Yara, you know, we do what we call UNT triggers here at Enquest, and these are basically just very optimized sort of signature content pieces that we can use when we write these detection signatures. 
off of those same file bytes that I was just talking about. So in one fell swoop, right, let's take all of that information that we just talked about for a file. We can produce a very brief block of information that's useful for a threat intelligence analyst, a malware analyst, and a detection engineer all at the same time, just by packing a little bit more context in there. So yeah, that's some uh, some like ideas about how to do more with some of these IOCs, I think. It's uh it's overwhelming in some cases, you know, but I mean we're geeks, right? <laughs> do you have all this information on a blog post somewhere, or is that just unveiled it now to us, but it's not documented anywhere? Like is there any not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say this really came to fruition <laughs> preparing for the blue hat talk. Um, so that is sort of what's laid out in the slides. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the blue hat also links to or distributes uh presentation slides for at least some of the talks, if that's not. Yeah, the video recording is up on YouTube as we speak, so we'll absolutely uh, include the link to that. Uh, and I think you know, there's an automatically generated transcript both from YouTube, and I think uh, there might be also one here for depending on the podcast player that you're in. But uh, we'll do our best, Aaron, to uh, collect some of those URLs that, that you listed. But also, if you do manage to write this down into a blog post, you know, please let us know, and we'll we'll get that added because it is it's fantastic guidance. And and I guess I mean this is a silly question, but I just want to ask it anyway. So. Who is this information for? Uh, you know, and, and I know that's a silly question, but you know, I guess maybe what I'm asking is, what types of roles in the security industry do you find are, and this is not about sort of assigning blame, but um, are more often than not sort of sharing IOCs back and forth because that's sort of just what everyone has done without realizing that they're they're not giving a lot of they're not giving you know a lot of context or that maybe just a little bit of more work, uh, you know, a few minutes extra research looking up some extra little piece of information would make it, you know, such a more richer piece of information to pass on. Like, is this specifically for analysts? Is this specifically for incident response leads? Is this specifically for, you know, a, a very finite set of roles? Or is this just everyone in the industry really needs to think more about IOCs and, and how to make them richer? Not a silly question at all. Yeah. And I think the answer to that is probably like all of us at one point or another. You know, if you are on the blue side of the industry and you're sharing threat indicators, you're already a step ahead, right? Like, again, talking about a time in the past, we didn't used to do that. There was a time where attacks would happen in a vacuum. You know, the the old adage about the tree falling in the forest, very much applicable there, right? So there was a lot of intelligence that was just sort of like left on the table and never shared with anyone. We've come far as an industry in that regard to where we are doing that like aggressively now. I would say we all realize sort of the value of it. So I would say, first of all, if you're not sharing information about attacks, definitely do it. You know, if you encounter an intrusion in your network or in your organization, sanitize it so that you're protecting what needs to be private, but then share that threat information out there. And then everything that we discussed, it applies to you. You know, bear in mind that if you are sharing information about IPs, domain names, files, TLS certificates, just anything that has to do with like an intrusion, attack, threat campaign, et cetera. There are ways to enrich that, uh, like we've been talking about. In terms of the audience, you know, or maybe like the persona, it does fall down very much along the lines that you talked about. Security analysts who work in SOCs, uh, threat intelligence analysts who are staffing like CTI teams, anybody who's got like a blue team hat on that deals with this. You know, in a lot of the communities that we participate in, we've got like a lot of different roles who participate. There's fraud analysts who are working for like banks and financial institutions. 
You know, some of them are specialized into very specific areas. Some of them only deal with like gift card fraud for the most part. But the interesting thing about that is there are adversaries who only focus on gift card fraud. So if they're not sharing that information with their peers across the industry, really, these are going to be threat groups that are largely unencumbered. People are not sharing information about them and their threat campaigns can go under the radar for a very long time and not be disrupted. You know, most adversaries will only change things up when they have to. So if we're making it hard on them, we're going to actually make it so that they spend less time, you know, stealing, less time impacting us and more time kind of redesigning their tooling and resetting up their infrastructure because we keep burning it down by sharing um, information. So I think all of those personas that you named are uh, in one way or another very relevant. This sounds like a lot of work. So could you give listeners just a sort of an indication of how much extra time should they be investing in going and finding this additional data to make their IOCs richer? Is it is it five minutes? Is it an hour? Is it a day? Obviously, I'm sure this is a question, this is how long is a piece of string. But I think maybe the 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 question here is how much time, if if any, would you try and encourage people to think about investing in going and getting this extra information so that their IOCs are so much richer and usable when they're sharing them? Yeah, the question makes a lot of sense. So generally what I would say is when we're doing our jobs, we're probably already producing this sort of information. Right. But then think about again, sort of the problem space. Person to person, a lot of what we're doing is we're copying and pasting. So if I'm analyzing an intrusion and I'm getting down into the details, nearly everything that I've talked about, I've probably already pulled that information from a data source that I have or from like a website that I'm using or a tool that I have on my system so that I can make those assessments and kind of do my due diligence as an analyst or responder, you know, or whatever. So in terms of um, how much additional overhead does it add, it's probably not very much. The problem is, is the manual to manual, like person to person sort of manual channel, it gets to be tedious because you're copying and pasting so much. You know, it's 2023 and the name of our game is still like command C, command V for a lot of things. So it's tedious and sometimes you have to reformat stuff, right? Like I'm copying from a terminal that I've been working in. Now I'm pasting it into a chat channel and I need to go through and do some formatting. So that's where I think some of the overhead can come in. But a lot of it is also like, which tooling are you using? Uh, so that's one of the things that we get to at the end of uh, the lightning talk. Um, and in my slides, I've linked off to about five or six different tools that basically allow you to run these indicators through a single utility that will basically do the work of grabbing that additional context and then outputting it into like a single line format. And then that's really easy to copy and paste into a blog post, into an email, into your chat channel or whatever. So I didn't really want to like focus hard on like the tooling during the talk, but that is important to mention. There's there's utilities that are really quite simple, Python scripts and things like that, uh, that allow you to basically uh, shave off that overhead and make it easier. The other thing I would say is like start looking at the solutions that you're using. You know, one of the things that we specialize at Inquest, obviously, with like our file analysis focus is everything that I talked about in terms of that like depth of detail that you need on files. We kind of produce that out of the box. Every file that comes into frame in our products, you know, we basically do a very detailed teardown on it. So at a glance, you can see all of the cryptographic hashes, file type information, those leading bytes that I was talking about, as well as like a ton of other information about like inner file contents and so forth. 
So that battle to kind of like, you know, gain supremacy in the file uh, warfare space, I think the tools that you're using can kind of make that a lot easier. Because once the utility tears it down and provides it for you, then again, it's very easy to kind of get that to share with other people. Whereas, you know, other utilities just may not go to that level of depth. So I think that a lot of it comes down to sort of like the tooling space and whether it's, you know, helping you do your job uh, better or whether it's leaving that as like manual effort that you have to go then like dig and do a lot of work. If it's hard, we're not going to do it. Right. But if it's already done for us, it makes it a lot easier to do what we've been talking about. I'm a master copy and paster. So I'm following. <laughs> I'm following here. Right. <laughs> we are getting close on time. And before we wrap it up, I want to just ask you, are there any other passion projects you're working on? Or do you have an online presence where folks can reach out? Or maybe not a blog post yet, but there will be blogs coming from this podcast. Well, where can folks find you? Yeah, definitely. I would really say, you know, for me, I'm going to point everybody to inquest.net and everything that we do on social. You know, we're active on LinkedIn and Twitter, and we also have a very active blog. My team directly, we put out uh, research and thread intel topics. So being a lesser known name, you know, I definitely would recommend that people check out our blog. Another really important resource uh, for finding a lot of our work is going to be Inquest Labs. This is labs.inquest.net. And uh, again, back to the tooling aspect, we have a lot of like free utilities for detection engineers and security analysts. Uh, and through labs, you can do a lot of this sort of like analysis and research. It's free, uh, just intended to be like uh, community resources. But these would be good places for people to check out and learn more. Awesome. Well, Darren, thank you so much for being on the Blue Hat podcast. Thank you so much for presenting at Blue Hat October 2023. We will put the links to the session recording in the show notes for this episode. You can also head to YouTube, search for Blue Hat October 2023 and the day one lightning talks and Darren is wrapping us up. Uh, Darren, thanks so much. We'll hope to talk to you again on another episode of the Blue Hat podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Nick, Wendy. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat at microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at MSFTBlueHat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.